We are in the book of Romans as a church, uh, making our way through the book of Romans. So we'll be in chapter 12 today, verses 9 through 16. Um, we're glad you're here with us, and what an important part of our worship and encountering God is being before His Word every Sunday. Um, so Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, um, you can turn there, and we'll read that shortly before that, though let me... Uh, relay a story to you. Uh, author Rosaria Butterfield writes the following. Going to dinner at that home of Christians was not high on my list of longed-for activities. As an out lesbian feminist, a leader in the LGBTQT rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and a soon-to-be tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Christians seemed like a small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. They ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed that the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the Bible, an ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. Our worldviews and the moral lens we used to make sense of things were incommensurable, unbridgeable, but there I was in the driveway. I breathed hard and hoisted myself out of my truck, nursing a tender hamstring for my morning run. I waded through the unusually thick July humidity to the front door, and I knocked. The threshold to their life was like none other. The threshold to their life brought me to the foot of the cross. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script. Nothing happened in the way I expected, not that night or the years after, or the hundreds of meals, or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through the door of this house as if no door was there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel. And for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is. Rosaria's friends, the Smiths, lived out the love of God in a powerful way that was used to overcome her objections and false views of Christianity and lead her to new life in Christ. This sort of love displayed in the Smiths' lives is a love from God and is a love that is the call of the gospel itself for all of us. Our passage today is about this love lived out. We'll dig into Romans 12, 9 through 16 as we learn about such love. So let's pray and ask that we ourselves could encounter this love of God and be transformed and be an instrument of his love to others. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your work in Rosaria's life. We thank you for the Smith family. We thank you, Lord, for the many families. Lord, the many families here, the many individuals here who have experienced your love and convey your love. But Lord, we need more of your love. We need more of your ways. We need more of looking like you. And we can't do this by ourselves. We are 
naturally sinful and opposed to true love. And so we ask you, Lord, come help us. Help me to teach and proclaim your word in such a way that you would use me to call your people and each one here to this truth and this love. That you would transform us by it. Both as a body loving one another, loving you, and loving those around us with this amazing love. Lead us, we pray. We thank you for your word, which is powerful and active. And we thank you, Lord, for your presence. Be glorified, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Usually I use the English Standard Version, but I think the New Living Translations will serve, will serve us better in this passage today. So Romans 12, 9-16, it says, Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy. And weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. And don't think you know it all. New Living Translation, Romans 12, 9 through 16. This is a passage that Paul has written. God, through Paul, has given it to us. It follows on from all of Romans. It follows on from 1 and 2 of this chapter, which teach us about the transformed life. And so this is about what the transformed life looks like. These verses are an exposition, really, on love. It's not enough to say simply, love one another. Or love God. We need to know the details. We need to see it fleshed out. We need to see what it means. And, and so often in scripture we, we have this fleshed out. 1 Corinthians 13 is a, a chapter full of 17 different descriptions of love. Of what love is. And this section is very similar. These verses really are what love is. These are a description of how love is lived out. What it looks like. And so we're going to take... Time to dig in. We're going to look at three things. First, love's core, verses 9 and following. Then love's activities, verses 10 through 13. And then love's objects, verses 14 through 16. And all this, we are learning that a life transformed by the good news, by the grace of God, by the mercies of God, as Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, is a life of love. So love's core. Paul says in the beginning, uh, don't pretend, just pretend to love others, really love them. It says, uh, love must be genuine in the ESV. So this idea that love is to be a true love, a love without deceit, without hypocrisy, a, a thorough love. It's to be a true and faithful love. This is what God's love is like. His love is true. There, there are no, you know, dark places in it. It's, it's, True through and through. 
God is actually the source of love. And that's so important to understand. And, and so if we're to love, we must love like God does with his sort of love, his sincere and true love. And he must be the reference point for our love if we're to understand love. And often in scripture we're taught this. Romans 5.8, earlier on in the book of Romans, it says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How do we know the love of God? Because while we were still sinners, when we were in a state of enmity toward God, we didn't want God to be God. We wanted to be God. We didn't want to walk in his ways and truly love him. We didn't really want to love others in the, in the way we're called to as we love ourselves. We wanted to be able to do it our way. When we lived in that state of enmity in opposition to a God who is only good and holy, God yet still loved us. And while we were still sinners, he loved us so much that God himself in the flesh died for us in our place. That's love. The Apostle John says, similarly, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then later on he says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To go to the cross and pay for our sins. To pay for our offenses against God and our sins against one another. To pay for those on the, on the cross entirely so we could be forgiven and reconciled with God. And through his love and his life in us, reconciled with others. Genuine love comes from God and fills our lives with the same sort of true and whole love. Love must be genuine. We can't pretend to love, we're to love like God does at the deepest level. And for this, we need, you need the power of God. You can approximate true love, maybe, without the power of God. But to walk in true love, love that's genuine, love that's thorough, love that's from the heart, love that's for those that are hard to love, you need a lot of power. And I have good news for you. You've got all the power you need in God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul's speaking about the new life. And in that context, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you are a believer, you already have experienced his love. And, and you know to a degree that he loves you, that he gave his son for you. you you've placed your faith in him. And by the way, if you're not yet a believer, we're glad you're here. We think this is a great place to be. We, by God's grace, want to be a people that represent what God's like and God loves you. Um, and we would want to encourage you to consider the truth of who he is and his love for you. And respond. And the response is very simple. We're called to place our faith in him, to turn away from self and sin and trust him. It's simply that. And if you've done that, you can know and you have experience because you, in the process of receiving that love, that, that his love has been poured out in your hearts by the Spirit. He is the one that is active in you, that you would know the love of God. And we must never forget that. Because this genuine love that we're called to is above us. Yet, it's who God is. It's at the core of his character. God is love. Many other things, he's all glorious, but at the core in all those things is the fact that he is the God of love. He's the inventor of love, the sustainer, and he's the fulfillment of love as well. And he's there for you. You need his power to walk in genuine love. This is who the Lord is. 
And really all of scripture is the revelation of that. It's the, the disclosure, the law of God actually is, is the details of love. All the commandments in scripture are not about mere rule keeping. All the commandments are related to loving God with, with all your being, to living in that love, depending on that love, and loving one another. That's the sum of the law. Henry Drummond in his famous 19th century essay, The Greatest Thing in the World, says the following. Take any of the commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me. If a man love God, you will not have to tell him that. Love is the fulfilling of that law. Take not his name in vain. Would he ever dream of taking his name in vain if he loved him? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Would he not be too glad to have one day in seven to dedicate more exclusively to the object of his affection? Love would fulfill all these laws regarding God. And so if he loved man, you could never think of telling him to honor his father and mother. He could not do anything else. It would be preposterous to tell him not to kill. You could only insult him if you suggested that, you, that he should not steal. How, how could he steal from those he loved? It would be superfluous to beg him not to bear false witness against his neighbor. If he loved him, it would be the last thing he would do. And you would never dream of urging him not to covet what his neighbors had. He would rather they possessed it than him himself. In this way, love is the fulfilling of the law. It is the rule for fulfilling all rules. The new commandment for keeping all the old commandments. Christ's one secret of the Christian life. Love. Loving God. Loving each other with genuine love. That is what we're called to. That's what we're empowered to do. And Paul's going to go on to explain what this love looks like. It must be genuine. And then he says, hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. By the way, I, I want to point out in this section, as you're reading it, you might think, how did you sew this all together? How did you say, end up at this conclusion that this is all about love. Well, I think you can see that and you can infer that just by looking and reading. But actually, it, uh, this, the section is structured in such a way that it shows connections that don't show up as well in English. There are different ways that you speak uh, in the original language of the Bible, um, using participles and connect these different connections that actually connect this whole section. Uh, and, and certainly certain verses are connected very strongly together. As you read it in your English Bible, you're seeing like one sentence, a short sentence, another short sentence, and it may feel like popcorn statements from Paul. Like Paul's just like, I got this idea. Oh, I got another idea over here. Let me throw this one on. And then there's this idea, but, but actually it's sewn together. That's why I chose the New Living Translation. I think they do a better job of showing how this all connects. So I just want you to know that. Um, that's the reality in translation. We always run into trouble. Don't freak out about translation. Um, translation, God knows about translation. He understands. And as English speakers, we have tons of good translations. The New Testament, actually, in their day, they were working with a translation of the Old Testament. The most common Bible of the day was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so a lot of the quotations in the New Testament are actually from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew version. Um, so all that to say that God gets it. It's in the Bible itself. Don't worry um, we have the resources, and at times, though, we do have to wrestle through. What, what does this mean? And, and it's my job, uh, as one of the pastors here, to help you see what it means, to teach and proclaim, and to help you understand, be convinced yourself, and by the power of God to obey. So going back now, I hope you can see that these things are tightly tied together. And so when Paul says love must be genuine, he connects the genuineness of love to the next things he says. He says, hate what is evil... And hold fast to what is good. 
We're to hate what is evil and to hold fast to what is good. So there's a command here. And it's really important to get. Lest we misunderstand love. Love is more than affirmation. Love is more than positivity. Love is more than acceptance. Love is so caring for someone else that you want the very best for them and act accordingly. And therefore love hates evil and clings to what is good. True love, God's love, must hate what is harmful and not beneficial. Thus, hating evil. Love hates. Biblical love, true love, God's love, hates. It must hate. Because love is about wanting the best for someone else. And if they're following the path towards what's not best, and we endorse that, we're not loving them. We must hate evil in order to truly love. Love is deeply moral. There is right and wrong. There is good and evil. And love will navigate that appropriately. That's what Paul's saying. Genuine love hates what's evil. Hates to see people get entrapped in deception and harmful things. Hates to see lives harmed and destroyed. And instead loves the good. Loves to see good in lives. Loves to see people enjoy the good. Love, loves to see people promote the good for others. Love delights in what's good. It's deeply moral. Unholy love is no love at all. True love is full of hate for evil and pursuit of goodness. Contrast this with not just hate and prejudice, but also with the sort of worldly love that we find around ourselves today. We will be considered unloving if, at times if we disagree with someone else's choice or their views, even if those views are harmful and contrary to God's good commandments. And if they are contrary to God's good commandments, they are contrary to the commandments that are summed up by love. And so if they're contrary to the commandments, they are contrary to true love. And yet our society, our culture currently, insists often that we affirm everything about somebody. But this tells us that's not true love. And so this is very different. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not an excuse to be judgmental, self-righteous, proud, or dogmatic. It's not an excuse to be rude. But also, on the other hand, we must understand it's a call to take stands on things in the name of love. Do it gently. Do it lovingly. Do it humbly. Search your own hearts. Identify with the other person because you probably struggle or are affected in some way by the same sorts of things. But we must hate evil if we are to love. And the standard for what is evil and good is God himself and his word. The word instructs us in this. The law explains it. Jesus embodies this. The gospel itself magnifies this reality of the divide between good and evil and true love, hating one and loving the other. So things like rudeness and pride and self-righteousness and greed, abuse of other people, abuse of self, abuse of God's creation, selfishness, godlessness, cruelty, oppression, judgmentalism, and sensitivity are all evil. And love will hate such things in ourselves first, by the way, and then in others as well around us. Instead, Paul says, love holds fast to what is good. The word is uh, 
also translated adhere or stick or glue. This is the idea that love actually sticks, grabs a hold and holds on to good. Um, I think of it like a magnet. Love is like a goodness magnet. It's like actually one of those, um, those electromagnets. I have a picture actually. This is the boy in me. Um, these are really cool. These, you guys ever seen this? In the metal scrapyards, they have these giant cranes with electromagnets and they go over and they flip it on and they can pick up big stuff. And, and sometimes I think I, I, when I retire as a pastor, I just want to operate one of these things and do that. Um, but that's a picture of what love is. Love is like a giant goodness magnet. It sticks to what's good. It loves what's good. It pursues what's good. It repels evil. It turns away from evil. It runs away. I don't want evil. I don't want to endorse evil. I don't want to have anything to do with evil, but I want, I love good. And I want to live in the good. I want to promote the good. I want to bring the good to others. I want to grab a hold of it and bring it. Love is necessary this way because love desires the best for another. So things like patience and forgiveness, truth and kindness, generosity, self-control, service, affection, inclusion, self-sacrifice. These are the sorts of things that will stick to those who walk in love. And things like irritability and bitterness, falsehood, rudeness, greed, indulgence, selfishness, aloofness, exclusion, abusiveness will be powerfully rejected. Love hates evil and holds tightly to what is good. So let me ask you, what sort of things stick to you? What do you grab a hold of and carry throughout the day? Is it something else? Is it fear? We struggle with fear. Fears can control us. God wants to free you in the gospel from this. Maybe it's fear that sticks to you. Is it ambition for your goals? Is it an overwhelming occupation with how you're feeling? We all struggle with that. But is it ruling you? Is it sticking to you? Is it one of your bodily appetites? Is that sticking to you and running your life? Is it worry? Or is it anger? Or disappointment? Or frustration? What sticks to you? The call of Romans 12, the call of all of Romans, the call of the gospel is by the mercies of God to find your life transformed, to find power in the gospel that God has so loved me that I can receive his love, I'm forgiven, and I can forgive others. God has given me power in the mercies of God by the Holy Spirit, and now I can walk in love, and I must pursue this love. I first received forgiveness for falling short. I first received forgiveness for trusting in something besides the mercies of God. But then as I walk this out, I'm to walk in love. So my brother or sister who is a co-struggler with me, let us turn to the gospel and let us be committed to pursuing genuine love. This is what love looks like. Next, love's actions. Paul goes on in verses 10 through 13 to describe Different actions, different activities of love. And the first activity in verse 10, he says, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. The, the word for genuine affection and the word actually for love there are words that have to do with family love. They have brother and, and family implied in those words. It's, it's, it's interesting. So what Paul's saying here is that you are to love each other like a close, dear family loves one another. Like a loving, good family would love 
in that family. So think of the most loving, devoted family you know. I'm sure you can think of. There's wonderful families in our church and elsewhere. And such a family will be full of care and interest in each other's lives. They'll enjoy time together. They'll work on communication. They'll work hard and play hard together. They'll be inclusive of each other's friends and eventually an extended family and so forth. That's the idea that Paul's getting at. That we are to love in this way. We are to love with affection. We are to love as very dear, close brothers and sisters. It's not the sort of love here, by the way, that sometimes we might hear about or even say ourselves. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the statement, um, I, I, I'm called to love you, but I don't have to like you. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Paul is actually saying, no, you actually have to like each other. You actually have to have affection towards each other. You have to actually enjoy being with each other. Now, of course, this qualifies, right? You hate what is evil, so that doesn't mean you like the bad, evil stuff that's there, and you somehow pretend that's okay. That's not what I'm saying. But there are so many other things that aren't in that category of of such immediate evil that you must address it. Love covers over a multitude of sins. So in a, a healthy family, as you love each other, you cover over a lot. You realize that, yeah, that's just my brother. That's, he's a little goofy. But I love him. And I'm goofy too. And he loves me. And we walk together. And yes, when things get out of hand and they're dangerous and there's sin that's dangerous, we lovingly will confront our brother or sister. All the while loving them with this affection, with this deep and true love. That's what Paul's saying here. We're to love each other with that sort of, of family affection and regard for each other. That's what love does. True love does this. Is this your type of love? Or is your love just a bare step above toleration? Does your love enjoy others and overlook sins and bear with others and think the best of others? Does your love propel you at times to address one another when, when that person is in danger because of sin? This is the sort of love that we're called to this deep and full and broad love that is the love of God itself in action. It follows in the next part of the sentence that such a family is eager to outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That when you have that sort of affection and regard for somebody, when you recognize the dignity that's in them as those made in the image of God, when you're aware of the good that's there in love, You're going to want to honor them. And Paul says you're to outdo one another in in honoring. Isn't that interesting? You're to compete, in a sense, in honoring each other. You are to to basically line up and try to get ahead and being the one to honor the next one. I I think of those two Disney chipmunks, uh, Chip and Dale, who are always arguing. No, you first. No, I insist. You first. No, after you. Uh, And that's a a comical picture, though, of the, the sort of heart we're to have for one another where we want to honor the other one. We think more of the other than ourselves. We think more of the honor they deserve than the honor that we deserve. That's what love does. That's what Paul says. Outdo one another. Get ahead of one another. Win the honor competition with each other, almost. Because you love each other. Even the worst or weakest humans have some aspect of the image of God worthy of honor. How much more our precious brothers and sisters bought with the blood of Christ being transformed into his image. We're to love this way. Paul continues in verse 11. He says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. This is connected to love. We're not to grow lazy in our love, in our service to the Lord, our service to one another. 
Not to be lazy in our life of love in Christ. It is easy to grow content with a malaise of love where we don't quite love each other a whole lot, but it's not that bad. To let the fire go out, let the embers fade. And Paul says, don't do that. Do not be slothful in zeal. Do not think that it's okay to let the fire go out. That it's okay to have a, a love that's, yeah, better than not, you know, an intolerance. And, you know, and it's not hate, so it's okay. No. We're not to be slothful in zeal. We're to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. We're to love each other in the Lord's name. We're to love each other deeply and not be satisfied with relaxing that standard. And again, this is a call to the love of God. And it's a call, it's a good call, but it's a daunting call. And so we need help. And many of you, I imagine, are feeling a little worn out. And maybe the fire, for different reasons, is merely embers. Maybe it's about to snuff out. I've been there. Matter of fact, I feel sometimes I'm there every single day of my life. And we're to go back again and again and again to the fountain of living water, to the grace that God provides to the truth of the gospel, then by the mercies of God, I appeal to you. Come back to the mercies of God. Be refreshed in the wonder of His infinite, eternal love for you. If you are a believer, you can know that He has loved you before time began. He's going to love you. He's going to keep you. He's going to be with you. He loves you that much. And His power is there to grant you power to love the unlovely, to, to stoke that fire again, to give you power to forgive, to give you the ability to, to consider the other more important than yourself. He will meet you. It is, it is our nature, by the way, to grow weak and tired because we're not God. We're created beings. We're made for that sort of relationship. We're made to go back and back and back to Him. You don't expect any of your appliances in your house to work without being plugged into the source, right? You don't get mad at the vacuum cleaner because it doesn't get up and do things on its own. It needs a power source. It needs you. You need God. And your state of tiredness and weariness is just a fresh reminder of that reality and a fresh invitation to once again come back. Come back to church and be with God's people. I find Sundays so refreshing. And often I come in on Sundays and I'm weak and I'm tired. Um, and God meets me. And I don't know what. Like, there's no formula. I mean, he tells us what to do on Sundays, more or less, right? But there, it's no, I can't say, well, it's this. It's, what it is, is God said, do this. Come together. And, and, and he meets us. He refreshes us. There are so many means that he grants to us in this good friendships and Community groups, Bible studies, youth group in our church, his word and prayer, and a continual prayer as well to the Holy Spirit. Help me. Fill me, O oh God, today. Help me to love others. And when we walk in that power, we can fulfill these things. We can fulfill the command do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. To serve in such a way. To continue to, to love. And then verse 12 says rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. These are things that help us along the way. In this life of love we're called to. We're to be fueled by hope. 
We're to rejoice in hope. We, we find fuel in hope. We find fuel in remembering our hope. Remembering the reality of what we have in the Lord. This, this sure promise that awaits us. One day we'll be with Him. One day soon. And we'll see Him face to face. There'll be no more sin, no more suffering, no more evil. We'll be with the Lord. To be apart from the body is to be with the Lord. And then one day He will bring all things to a conclusion and full redemption. And we'll have renewed bodies and a new creation. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more suffering. But knowing the fullness of love from Him and to Him and to one another. I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that moment. And we're to rejoice in this hope. That propels us. That helps us. Having those things in mind. And we, we get this in regular life, right? It, it's the, the sort of feeling we have before the approach of a happy event. If we have a, I don't know, a graduation coming up or a wedding or a birth of a child, a much needed vacation, maybe the return of a loved one from overseas. The hope of that propels us and there's joy. I can't wait for that to happen. And that's the same idea here with the goodness of all that we have in Christ is to fuel us and to give us strength for the journey. The promise is sure you will be with the Lord. There will be a time when you're in His presence and by grace He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And all, all the trials and all the suffering, all the sorrow, all the challenges of this life will seem as nothing compared to Him. So brother or sister, hang in there. Keep loving. Keep asking for power. Be patient in affliction. Be constant in prayer. Prayer is its own reward as we are in the journey, we're in the battle, and we're seeking to love. We're to be constant in prayer. We're to prayer. We're to, we're to ask for help. We're to ask for fresh strength. And he'll answer that prayer. That's, of course, the answer. But even the experience of praying will, will bring peace. We're promised peace as a relief to anxiety as we pray. These are the, the, the means along the way of a life of love that he calls us to. He goes on. And other activities, the activities of love. It's not just about you and your, your relationship with the Lord, as important as those things are, kind of your personal piety, rejoicing and loving and not being slothful, but it's also about activities that have to do with others. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Loving means helping others out. It means contributing to their needs. It means giving financially, giving of your time to help others in their needs. And I'm so grateful for this church that does this so well. We have a benevolent fund that's set up for those in crises, especially lack of food, clothing, or shelter. And there's all sorts of other ways our, our folks, you guys, do such a great job of contributing to that and giving of your time and efforts. And then practicing hospitality, as you saw in the story with Rosaria Butterfield, is so important and so powerful. And I am so grateful for this church that loves in this way. I've, I've heard from many people that are, are relatively new here, and they talk about how well they've been invited and, and made a part of this church family. And that's you guys doing that. You do a great job with new people. Not overbearing, um, but politely and persistently loving them. I'm so grateful. Thank you for how you guys show hospitality in all these ways, inviting people over your homes. Thank you to those who work so hard every Sunday. And There's a crew here every Sunday early setting things up, putting things in order, cleaning up, 
people greeting, ushering, preparing, decorating the building, caring for the grounds, making newcomers feel welcome, and then when we have our potlucks, our potluck team providing hospitality. Thank you. I can't say enough to tell you how important this hospitality is and how it's a real and powerful way to demonstrate the love of God to everyone here. These are love's activities. And finally, love's objects. Paul continues in verses 14 through 16 to talk about the objects of love. It addresses these objects. And then um, he's going to later on talk some more about what to do uh, when we're opposed. But he says actually in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. It seems out of place. Does this, how does this relate to love? And he's talking about in this section about the objects of love, the people, the sorts of people we love. I think that what Paul's doing is he's putting the hardest object of love up front to address that. And then we'll go into the ones that are a little easier. The hardest people to love are, are those who persecute us. And this word for persecute certainly means persecute us for our faith in Jesus, but it means more than that. The word basically means pursue or implies pursue for the sake of harm. So an abuser, an oppressor, a, a mistreater is the idea. Those who mistreat us is another way to say it. So it isn't just those that persecute us because we're Christians. It can be anybody who mistreats you is in this category. And the call here, the call of love is to bless those who mistreat you, to not curse them, to pray that God will bless them, to, to bless them yourself and to pray blessing on them. That's what love does. The natural response, of course, is to curse, right? And that's a, a, a natural thing to do when you are, feel like you're being mistreated. Your first response, my first response is often that way. Sadly, that's who I am apart from Jesus. So whatever it might be, if it's somebody who just, you know, does it by mistake, mistreats me, and they're not even aware of it. It's a, it's a mistreatment of ignorance. Or if it's someone who, who's intentional, that, that gets my goat. That fires me up. And I have to be careful because I want to curse. I want to show them. I want to fix it. I want to show them how to drive the right way. And so forth. And this tells me, don't do that. This is what love looks like. Bless those who mistreat you. Bless them. Pray for them. Love them. Live in the love of God in such a way that you've been forgiven when you mistreated God and you mistreated others. You've been forgiven. And now His love is to fill your heart. And so you have power in Him, in the gospel, if, if you're pursuing Him, if you're living in the truth of the gospel, to actually love those who persecute you, to bless them, to pray for them. Now, there are situations, of course, where it's dangerous to be around that person. And so don't hear what I'm not saying on that. There are qualifiers here. There is some mistreatment. We need to flee from the mistreater. But we're still to bless them, to love them, to pray for them, and in, in forgiveness and in love, to want the very best for them. That's what we're called to. Jesus teaches us this. Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who, who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Wow. That's radical. But God's love is radical. It's radically different than who we are in our natural selves. And the rescue of God includes transforming us to love like this. Now the situations and the objects get easier as Paul moves on. Next, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. 
Paul's still speaking about what love looks like, and he's speaking here about love empathizing with others. Love sees things from the other's vantage point and seeks to understand and identify with that person. It's a sign of genuine love to identify, to even feel the same as someone else. You might not have the benefit of the reasons for their joy, but you're still to rejoice with them. You may not have to go through what they're suffering as they weep, but you're to weep with them. That's empathy. That's what love looks like. Love empathizes with others. It identifies with others. It even shares in their experience in a meaningful way, though it is not our experience. And love is to do this in big ways and small ways. Certainly the big joys and the big hardships, we rejoice together, we weep together, but all the small things as well. I would say that this is how love looks in every aspect of life. It's full of empathy. So imagine two very different scenarios to illustrate this. If we could put those scenarios up. Scenario one. Two people, Jane and Sally. Sorry if your name is Jane or Sally. Jane says, how are you doing, Sally? How was your week? Sally says, I'm doing okay, but my week was tough. I got laid off from work. Jane says, oh, wow, I'm sorry to hear that. But you're talented. You'll get something else for work. We all go through hard times. You'll feel better soon. Hey, do you want to work out tomorrow? Sally blanks there. Scenario two, Jane. How are you doing, Sally? How was your week? Sally, I'm doing okay, but my week was tough. I got laid off from work. Jane, oh, wow. I'm so sorry. That must have been hard. Oh, Sally, can I, can I give you a hug? Sally hugs Jane and starts crying and pouring out her heart how the whole year has been one disappointment after another. Jane continues to empathize and listen, and they finish for now by praying, and yes, they do work out together tomorrow. What's the difference? Weeping with those who weep. Empathy. Not being so eager to get to your agenda item, your thoughts, that you miss the other person. And you miss loving them in this way. Love rejoices with those who rejoice. And it weeps with those who weep. And this leads to the next exhortation. Because when we do this, Paul says we are called to live in harmony with one another. To live in harmony with one another. I love that word harmony. Uh, the original it says to think the same thing. So it's, it's to be on the same note more or less. But harmony actually is a wonderful word because harmony uh, reminds me of singing harmony. Um, and I love to listen to those who can sing harmony. I have a hard time figuring out how to do it. I can copy someone else doing it, but I can't come up with it on my own. I love those who can do it and I love our music team. So many people can do that. And the beauty of harmony is, is that everybody is sensitive to one another. Actually, you're sensitive to the melody, the main note. And you're not singing your own deal. You're not thinking, I don't like that melody, actually. I'm going to go do my own thing over here and start singing a different melody, a different song. No, it says, I'm thinking about that, that note, and I'm going to bring in my ability to complement that note. And then if you have multiple harmonies, it's, it's glorious. It actually is my favorite uh, genre of music. My favorite instrument is the human voice, especially when it's in harmony. I love, I love the songs with harmony in them because they're beautiful and they're a picture of what love looks like. We're aware of the other person and what they're doing and we come alongside to complement them. 
we're thinking what they're thinking. Yeah, we're going to sing this song together. And we're going we're to emphasize the melody, but I'm going to use my part to complement, to come alongside to make that even more beautiful. That's the picture here. That's what love looks like. Paul finishes, and I finish where he does. Verse 16, continue. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Pride is the opposite of love. True love humbles oneself to serve others. True one regards others as equally, or if not more, important. True love does not elevate oneself. I love the following story quickly about Queen Elizabeth in this regard. At a reception honoring musician Sir Robert Mayer in his 100th birthday, elderly British socialite Lady Diana Cooper fell into conversation with a friendly woman who seemed to know her well. Lady Diana's failing eyesight prevented her from recognizing her fellow guest until she peered more closely at the magnificent diamonds and realized she was talking to Queen Elizabeth. Overcome with embarrassment, Lady Diana curtsied and said, Ma'am, oh ma'am, I'm, I'm sorry ma'am, I didn't recognize you without your crown. And the Queen replied, It was so much Sir Robert's evening that I decided to leave it behind. Brothers and sisters, let's leave our crowns behind and make it about others. Let's live in the love that we're called to, that follows on from the mercies of God this glorious and good thing called God's love. A life transformed by the good news of Jesus is a life of love. We all fall short of the standard, but by the mercies of God, we're fully forgiven and empowered to make a fresh start to love one another. As I finish, before we transition to communion, let's take a moment to think of one person or situation where you've fallen short in love. Just one. Don't overwhelm yourself. Ask God for forgiveness for that. Receive that forgiveness and His love. Ask for fresh power to love. To love in ways we've seen today in Romans chapter 12. May God bless you as you do this today.